0: You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie, And our episode today of Fifth Wave Radio will be with winemaker Antonella Manulli. Uh, Antonella makes wine in Tuscany, but to say that that she makes wine in Tuscany is an (laughs) understatement. She does, at her estate, is extremely unique. And she's been a a leader in uh, regenerative, wine growing so instead of me talking about what she's doing I'm gonna let I'm gonna turn it over to her Antonella thank you for being on the show
1: thank you Pamela for having me
0: <laughs> well so if, can you tell our listeners about how you came to your career uh just your background and, and how you came to winemaking
1: yes okay um it wasn't a straightforward path. I, I started working um, in, um, in companies, in administration, and then I moved to um, marketing and tourism. And uh, I, when I was around 30, I started, um, I took this job with, uh, with a resort in the, in the south of Tuscany so uh in this area that's called Maremma and I was uh, been working there for about 10 years and um while I was there I of course I I liked very much I've always been interested about environment and you know eating healthy foods um and you know taking care of yourself etc and um so when, when I was there, I was really uh, struck by how, um, you know, the environment was so unspoiled and beautiful. And it was like, uh, you know, which is something also quite unusual for Italy because Italy is a very densely populated country. So it's not so uh, common to find vast areas that are completely, almost completely wild. Where nature is uh, ruling in a way, um, and this is what you find in this area in southern Tuscany that is called Maremma. So I was really impressed by that, and uh, by knowing the area more while I was working there, I I also noticed that um, actually there was uh, almost no awareness in the locals about this, you know, about this environmental unique aspects. <laughs> And um, so I started thinking, you know, why not try to do something myself? I had no experience whatsoever in agriculture, but uh, you know, I was, um, I don't know I was um, maybe, <laughs> I don't know if it was a good thing or, or a bad thing, but it's just my personality to, to throw myself into things. And so that's what I did. And, and when I started, really, I, I had no experience, but I had this goal very, very clear that I wanted to do something, uh, you know, produce something that was healthy and would really uh, be a witness to, the, to this place that's re- so unique and also not very well known in Italy, you know, not just uh, Because when we think of Tuscany, we think of Florence and actually a lot of places that are in the the north of the region. And the south is not so well known even to Tuscans. And uh, so I started looking for uh, some plots of land, which took me a while, took me about four years to find something that I thought could be suitable. And of course, what do you produce in Tuscany? Uh, it's an arid place. So you you produce wine, olive oil, you know, you don't produce fruits or cereals that much because you need to to be able to produce um, without water, basically. And uh, so I found these plots of land and I started where where there was an old vineyard and also some very old olive trees. Uh, so that was important to me because it gave me a clue about what was the history of this place, and so I could build from that to develop my my um, farm, basically. And uh, so that's how it start, uh, that's how it started. <laughs> so here I am. This was about uh, in, in uh, twenty ten. Um, the vineyard had been abandoned for a few years, I uh, put it back in production. It took also a couple of years. And it was very interesting because we could study all the varieties that were, uh, this, this is a vineyard that was planted in the beginning of the sixties. So it's quite old as far as vineyards go. And it was all planted with, um, you know, historical varieties of, of Southern Tuscany, basically. Tuscanians, but mainly Southern Tuscany. And uh, which which are the varieties (laughs) are? Okay, there's strange names. People are not using two local Tuscan variety names. They are used to maybe Piemontese varieties, very well known. So in the reds, we have something that is called Ciliegiolo. Mm -hmm. So Ciliegiolo, which was determined by DNA to be one of the ancestors to the Sangiovese which is more well-known. So of course, I also have some Sangiovese, not that much. Um, and then I, I also found uh, gray Canonao. Canonao is, is a, um, the same family of Grenache. It's called Grenache in, in France. It's called uh, Garnacha in Spain. Uh, it's the same family of, um, of varieties uh, that is very widespread in the Mediterranean area. And gray because it's the kind with less color, even though it's a red variety, even when it's, it's very beautiful because even when it's ripe, you can still find some pink berries. It's very beautiful to look at. And in the, in the white varieties, uh, we have this uh, Procanico, Procanico has become a very rare variety actually, as far as varieties go in Italy. You know that uh, in Italy, there there is the most um, concentration, the highest concentration of varieties in the world, I believe is more than 500 and something. Of these more than 500, the really actually cultivated is probably not even 50 or 60. Uh, And then you have some areas like we have in our area, which is um, near Pitigliano. Uh, Pitigliano is a volcanic area where this Procanico variety evolved over time, over a very long time. It was already mentioned by uh, Plinio, the the Roman agronomist, so it really goes way back in time. And it's become rare because, of course, uh, you know, the the yields are are quite low and um, the um, the bunch is quite small, you know, so it was um, taken over by Trebbiano uh, because there was a time where uh, people were producing more for quantity. And this we're all aware this is what happened in Tuscany anyway.
0: Yeah. So. When you took over the vineyard, did you know that you wanted to farm organically or in a way that was, you know, or biodynamically? And I know that you have, you've devised your own method, but did you know from the very beginning that that's something you wanted to do?
1: Yes, I think what's um, quite unique about La Maliosa, by the way, the name of my farm is La Magliosa, is that this is a project that was started from the onset, right from the very beginning, with the idea of producing natural wine. Um, we didn't call it natural wine, we didn't know what natural wine was as far as the definition of wine, but this is something I learned after. But um, yes, the idea was to produce uh, in in the most totally natural way without adding anything and to really express the character of the place without the least human intervention possible. Um, And so this is, I think this is, uh, something that makes us unique because we didn't take over, you know, a farm and then, you know, that was like conventional and then turn it into organic or whatever. We just started from scratch because now I have, you know, this old vineyard was only 7,000 meters. Now I have planted about eight and a half hectares of vines. So that was all planted by me and, um with the idea uh, of producing natural wine and olive yeah. oil, of course. Yeah.
0: we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Uh, so we want to thank Charles Neal Selections there with Charles Neal's generous support of KXSF, San Francisco Community Radio comes, comes Charles Neal Selections. Since 1998, San Francisco-based Charles Neal Selections has been an importer and distributor of fine wines and spirits for wholesale. Retail stores and restaurants across 17 states. Learn more about Charles Neal's focus on imports from family-owned operations throughout France by visiting the website at selectionscom Thank you for your support, and I'll just add that if you are an Armagnac fan, you definitely want to check out uh, Charles Neal Selections. Charles is importing the best Armagnacs in the United States. So let's get back to wine. Uh, well, we were that it just seemed appropriate to have a wine underwriter uh, with the show. Uh, so you are practicing the Corino method. Can you tell everyone here about the uh, Lorenzo Corino and the Corino method and how it's different from other, from, you know, organic, biodynamic and other natural methods of, of viticulture? Because I know it's not, it's not just about viticulture too.
1: Yes, uh, I was very lucky because after I started, maybe after... Not even a couple of years, I realized that um, locally there was no expertise ab- about far, a, a, you know, low intervention, natural, I don't know how you want to say it, but there's absolutely no experience and people didn't really understand what I wanted to do, you know, locally there. And so I started. Um, looking around for somebody that could understand this project and take it to the next level basically and develop it um, exactly in the way that I had in mind. Uh, And I was lucky to meet um, Professor Lorenzo Corino uh, at a very uh, particular time in his life because he was retiring. from he used to um, be the head of the viticulture and uh, enology institute in uh, in Asti Piedmont uh, and of course he was uh, an, an employee of of the state so he couldn't have done any consultancy <laughs> because he was you know a public employee so uh, i was also lucky not only to meet him and to really connect about uh, you know this project uh, which he liked very much um he liked the idea of course that that i had but also he was retiring so he was able to come and work with me uh So besides that, I think he really chose to spend um, his last years, which was about eight years, uh, at La Maliosa to develop this project from scratch, because I think uh, he saw an opportunity to really do something from scratch, which is also very unusual in the wine world, because you find vineyards and you manage them. Uh, It's not so usual that you start and also to start a project completely natural, very rigorous, uh, going into already with the idea of producing natural wine. So also planting vineyards with that idea in mind. Uh, And it, it gave him an opportunity to put into practice a lot of his ideas that he had been developing for decades and which really um, didn't have so much an opportunity to, to do besides his own winery that, that he has uh, he had in Piedmont.
0: Great, so that they, So what is, it? <laughs> what is it? Exactly, what is it? Well, for instance, I, like, I was reading, it says the method focuses on the vitality of the soil and the health of the environment producers and consumers. Sorry, I can't hear you anymore. Oh no, can, can you
1: hear repeat, me now please?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's, you know, you say on your website, the method focuses on the vitality of the soil and the health mm-hmm. of the environment producers and consumers. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I know it's, there's the definitely the viticulture part of it, but it's more than that as well. Uh, and, and so if you could just explain, let's say maybe starting with the viticulture aspect, and mm-hmm. what it's about, and what makes it different from, let's say, organic or biodynamic mm-hmm. uh, farming.
1: Yes, I would say that at the center of everything, we called it, by the way, Corino method. After a few years, so it's just a way of doing things. Is a way. It, it's a process, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you need to put a lot of things together, but at the center of everything is how you treat soil. So the vitality of the soil, like you mentioned, is really one of the most important, uh, I would say, um, pillars of of the Metodo Corino. Uh, We invested, and when I say invested, meaning also, you know, uh, money. Um, because we, uh, for, for a couple of years, all we did was, uh, improve the vitality of the soil. We didn't even start with planting. Uh, and, uh, the, the way we did this is by, um, basically, uh, not plowing at all. Uh, not touching the soil at all. We left uh, you know, the wild herbs to, to be, um, just free to, to grow and, uh, and dry. And, and so when they dried, they, um, of course the seeds, you know, they go in, into the, the soil and, uh, and the next year you have more complexity. And, uh, uh so, Over the years, uh, this improved the quality of the soil very much, and this is not something that we say because uh, we have been working with a research institute in Florence that actually measured life in soil, so we could see how this was improving. Uh, There's a lot of little animals with very weird names that (laughs) I cannot repeat. Um, After that, we planted the new vineyards and um, one one thing is we only use the historical varieties from a place. From, so in my case from Maremma, and the logic is that you, if you use and I'm not using the word autochthonous or local because you know that the definition uh, of autochthonous is. That it has to be in a place for 50 years. So it doesn't actually mean anything because in a place for 50 years could be anything, right? Yeah. So we use historical meaning something that came, uh, that, that was recorded, you know, in the in Maremma for at least 100 years that was there originally before all the international varieties went, were cultivated. And um, this is because you need uh, to have less intervention with varieties that are very adapted to a climate and to a type of soil. And uh, this is a difficult environment because it's a very, very dry environment. It has harsh, um, uh, very harsh, you know, everything is a lot like you get a lot of sun, a lot of dryness, a lot of wind when it rains is like, floods, you know. Uh, So uh, you need vines that can withstand all of this uh, harshness in a way. Uh, So that's the second second thing. So the soil, the varieties. um, Also, the the way we um, prune the way we prune, we, we prefer to uh, prune in the actually I don't know how you say this in English. Like the, I think it's called head trained when you when you have the plant looking like a little tree, basically yeah. the mm-hmm. vine. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we, we head train uh, because we, we leave the the vines to grow in a, in a, in four dimensions. Okay, in the three dimensions actually, <laughs> uh, like a tree, because this is what happens in nature, and and the plant can uh, can um, you know, be more healthy in this way, uh, because you're not making it, you know, assume some, some shape that is not natural, basically. So all these things together uh, help us in in doing very little, actually. Uh, then of course, yes, we, we don't use any, any chemicals in the vineyard, but this is, I think, you, you you could guess that yeah um and then when uh, the, the aim of all of this is to have grapes that have a thick skin and this is very important because uh, with a thick skin you uh, you have uh it allows you to not use technology, um, and you know, not not basically use anything except the natural yeasts that that are very present on the on the skin. This is very very uh, you know simple way of explaining to you the right. the of Gorino. Okay, there are also some a lot of other things there which I think is not. Are not so much uh, interesting to you, which have to do with uh, um, with um, maintaining the historical scenery. Of, for for example, so uh, when you plant, when we plant a vineyard, we don't use very long rows, so short rows. Of course, we don't use heavy machinery. We don't go into the vineyard with heavy machinery. Machinery with, with, We plant with very um, narrow rows and we don't plant from top to bottom while we follow the, um, uh, the slope. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of technical uh, things that we're doing anyway. So why are you using
0: shorter rows? What is, what's the reasoning behind that?
1: Yes, because we're doing everything manual, mm-hmm. okay? So we're walking in the vineyard, we're not introducing any, any heavy machinery. So if you are using very, very long rows, um, you're forced to use tractors, you know, right. what, what? how are people gonna move inside the vineyard? And also it has to do, like I was saying, with maintaining a historical scenery because in Tuscany uh it didn't exist you know and you know to have these immense vineyards going on forever it was not something that was there so it's, mm-hmm. it's also that so
0: so one thing I wanted to ask you about is that you say that it's it's not just about the production of the grapes and wine, but include the culture lifestyle landscape uh how and as well as the profit margin for producers how did, how is that part of this method like, the profit like, margin you mean well the no, the profit margin being one of them but also just the lifestyle and you know the health of the environment the you know the lifestyle the culture how how does that all figure into the carina method
1: Yeah, well, it figures because um, it's basically something that people are not doing anymore. So we are uh, bringing back to a place, um, you know, a tie to to the past and to culture. What was the culture of a place? Um, Because you know, um, viticulture is so much tied in Italy with history Uh, since you know, the beginning uh, of history, which is a long time ago, you know, thousands of years, it was all tied uh, with viticulture. So different way of training and doing viticulture were uh, part of the culture of the people. For instance, in uh, in Maremma, uh, we had the Etruscans, mm-hmm. which was this very mysterious, mysterious, but very educated people that came before the Romans and um, actually, were conquered, of course, at one point by the Romans. But may- maybe uh, a lot of people don't know that the first two Roman kings, in fact, were Etruscan. They were not Roman, <laughs> and uh, and they were so, um, you know, culturally advanced that the rich Roman families uh, used to have an Etruscan teacher for their children. Uh, and and our area is really one of the most um, ancient for uh, for the Etruscan culture and viticulture actually also started in different places but also with the with the Etruscans they used to um, have the live support so they used the tree uh, a live tree and and um, and so, you know, it's, it's tied with the history of the people. So once we are, um, you know, bringing back all these things, you know, the ancient varieties, the way to prune, the way you cultivate, um, express the character of a territory. In effect, you are giving back to the, the territory. You're giving, you're giving back history to the people that uh, have forgotten. You know, one comment... I get a lot from local people that taste my wines is, this is the wine that I drank with my grandfather. Mm. This is like, I always get this comment because it's an ancient taste. So it's not just the historical variety is the way we make it is so faithful, you know, to to how it used to be made that people are recognizing the taste from their youth, from their childhood that that they haven't, you know, found anymore in in decades. So it's bringing back, you know, their memories and their history. And it's not easy, I have to tell you, it's not easy because also you you don't find anybody that is used to working manually in vineyards anymore, at least not in my area. Uh, I know maybe in other areas in Italy is more common, but not uh, here. So it's like you have to teach them all over again, but you're also giving them back some pride about their their land, you know? Mm-hmm. So in this way, um, you know, is tied with culture. But,
0: and then also, I guess, just to ask about the profit margin, uh, because one thing that I'm starting to hear people talk about a little bit more is the idea of of having businesses that are that are economically sustainable, meaning that the that there, you can make there's enough profit so that the business can sustain itself so that it can go on, but where there's also every you know all the workers are being paid and treated fairly, you know like for instance in the in California, this time of year when we're in the middle of harvest, you know most of the people who are harvesting are from, Central, from Mexico and Central America. I mean, that's not everyone, but most of them are. And you know, some of them are paid fairly, some are not. And even those who let's say are paid fairly, it's seasonal work. And they might be paid fairly, but they don't have health, health insurance. Uh, so there's, you know, here, where people are starting to talk a little bit more about fair treatment toward the workers. Um, how does that fit in with what you're doing at Meliosa
1: yes it totally fits in totally because um, uh, also in Italy we have this this problem you know because agriculture is a typical sector where you don't hire people you kind of you know pay them on the side etc and then they don't have all the benefits and you um, So, uh, I think you made a very important point. I think if you produce natural wine, you shouldn't concern yourself with just not adding sulfites in the cellar. You should concern yourself with how you're treating people, with how you're treating the environment, you know, Um, and and the people part is very, very important. Um, And, so, so for instance, La Maliosa. Of course, we hire everybody <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> completely. You know, like in a in a legal way, uh, and um, we we were also awarded actually by the um, the the IMS is the um, the government agency for uh, mm-hmm. labor and pensions, basically. And we were awarded, you know, um, it's it's like an award for farms that are working in uh, respecting all the laws and 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 etc. But also, I I think is important to invest in in people, not just to pay them fairly, but also to invest in their training uh, because you need to give. Them dignity and pride to be doing something good, you know, for uh, for them and and that they they have a pride in working for for a farm like this. I think this is important. Not always easy. <laughs> we are employing, of course, Italians. We are employing people from Eastern Europe, and uh, in the beginning, it wasn't so easy you know to transfer this they they didn't understand why we made them do things in a way and not another they were maybe more used to uh but the workers that have been with us for a few years uh they they are really i think uh, proud they're really proud to to be working for a farm like this i think yeah yeah
0: Okay, we need to take another quick break here. For those of you who are listening, this is KXSF, LP San Francisco. And you're listening to 5th Wave Radio. I am Pamela Louie. My guest is Antonella Manuli, uh, Fattoria Maliosa in Tuscany, and we'll be right back. So uh, we'd like to thank Mr. Music Head, the ultimate music gift shop serving Los Angeles and the world since 1998. Mr. Music has specializes in a variety of media celebrating music, including paintings, photos, drawings, sculptures, prints, and concert posters. Wow, it is a one-stop shop. Uh, order online or schedule an appointment to visit their Sunset Boulevard location at mrmusic.com. Thanks for supporting KXSF Community Radio. And I also, while we're here, want to uh, thank the Native American Health Center serving the California Bay Area native population and other underserved groups in our region since 1972. The Native American Health Center offers medical, dental, and behavioral health, community wellness, and women, infant, and children services at locations in San Francisco on Cap Street or in Richmond and Oakland. To learn more, visit nativehealth.org. Okay, so let's, let's get back to our discussion with Antonella Manulli. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate mm-hmm. your time. I know this is a busy time of year for you because you're in the midst of harvest. Uh, there's a lot that's going on in Italy and elsewhere. So I, I want to just change the topic a little bit. You know, you and I talked back in April when you participated in the virtual wine fair about what you know, the situation in Europe at the time uh, where, you know, the the major crisis then, which still is a major crisis, it was the war in Ukraine. And you had mentioned that you had been using some of the the structures at the, you know, at Maliosa to help house some of the refugees. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how you met some of these, the Ukrainian refugees and, you know, to begin with um, and how you were able to use your resources to help them?
1: yes um so yes pamela when the war started i was really um i mean you know it's a war in europe which is something quite shocking and i think everybody was quite shocked at the thought we have a war in europe you know uh, and ukraine <laughs> which is uh, something I really never thought about, uh, because it wasn't in the news, but then I realized how close, even geographically, uh, is Ukraine uh, to us. Uh, And um, I was really touched by the situation and I started thinking, you know, maybe how, you know, can, can we get involved and do something personally this time, because uh, it's easy to give money, you give clothes and you kind of turn your head and do your own thing. And and this time I tried to find a way to get involved more personally and do something for these people. Uh, and I came across this website um, by reading a blog. It was, it was funny because I was reading this blog from a Spanish farm and the farmer was saying how he took in some Ukrainian refugees and there was this link to this website, uh, which is like an Airbnb for Ukrainian refugees, basically, where you put yourself, you know, you put your announcement and you say what your availability is. So I went on, the, on this website, it's called I Can Host. Um, and um, and uh, I, I just put the farm there and I, and I started being contacted by people really a lot of people, because uh, the, the first weeks of the wars, that's when more Ukrainians were escaping altogether, you know, and trying to find refuge somewhere. And by speaking over WhatsApp, actually, then I came across a couple of families, because also I needed to find some people that were would be would be good candidates to settle in in an area like ours which, you know, small villages, no public transportation, um, you know, everything is kind of scattered uh, and, and not very uh, close. <laughs> and uh, and so I need to find, you know, people that work good uh, for, for our place. And I found these two families, uh, three women and three children. And they were still in Ukraine. Uh, actually, it was also quite shocking because once I was I was talking on what's up with them, and right at that time they were under uh, bombs. The bombs started falling, and and the lady was like going crazy, and so it was quite <laughs> anyway. Um, so uh, from there, they escaped to Poland and, and uh, they were helped by some volunteers and, and then they came to Italy and they have been with us since uh, beginning of April and they have settled very well. I think um, the village of Saturnia was very, very helpful and they were, all the people were very welcoming with them and uh, a couple of the ladies are working. We have a wine bar in the center of the village. They're working in the wine bar. The the children are going to the local school. I think it was a good experiment in in that fact. Of course, when they came over, they thought it would be for just a, a few weeks. None of them were expecting for this war to last so long. Uh, and now they are in a phase where they really don't know um, really what's, what's going to happen, you know, because they cannot think long term because, of course, they want to go back to Ukraine, but it's still becoming like a, a, a middle term, <laughs> meaning it's not just a couple of months, but it's going to be what, how many months, a year, uh both ladies have their husbands in ukraine one of them is in the military and she's like speaking uh, when she can and is like on the war scene so it's it's very stressful it's very very stressful so
0: and how have they integrated into i know it's temporary but how have they integrated into what you're doing at the farm
1: uh, like I said, they are they are working in the swine bar, which is easier for them because farm work is not something yeah. that I mean, they don't they wouldn't know what they're doing, and it wouldn't be yeah. easy for them to do farm work. But they are working. They're like waiting tables and uh, learning Italian quite well is very very smart people ukrainians are a very well educated it's not a typical refugee that you have in mind they all have university degrees they speak many at least two languages uh, uh, often three because all of them they speak russian ukrainian and uh, english in, in maybe more or less you know some of them very well um so they, they are a people that's actually very IT smart. I mean, they, they, they are quite an advanced uh, people like the children something that we found you know, in Italy, they tested the children for math and they are a lot better than Italian children. So their education system was a very good education system and, and also very well organized even now the children are are going to school online with ukraine so the, in the morning they're going to italian school and in the afternoon they they are online with ukraine with their teachers in ukraine and they're getting ukrainian and uh, and math in a you know online with with ukraine mm-hmm.
0: that's that's great that's that's wonderful i mean it's wonderful are, is, are there any other ukrainians in your village or or
1: well, I know. I know in the in the local school there are like four Ukrainian children. Mm-hmm. The elementary school, mm-hmm. um, mostly you know, small children. But uh, I think it's easier for children to integrate in small villages, actually. Yeah. Because also for the mothers, they, they know all the people in the village, and so they, they, it's easier for them to have a network, uh, you know, to interact with. Yeah. Than, than in a big city for sure. Yeah.
0: Well, let's here. I need to let's just do another, to do another quick PSA here. Uh, the Community Music Center is a San Francisco vital hub for music education and performance anchored in the city's Mission District and the Outer Richmond. Founded in 1921, CMC is a nonprofit organization providing high quality music instruction to anyone, regardless of financial means. That's 100 years of love of music, inspiring students to reach their fullest potential. For information on classes, summer camps, or how you can get CMC enriched scholarships for in need students, go to sfcmc.org. So, uh, just kind of on the subject, I guess we're talking a little bit about the the, uh, refugees that you have helped and some of the other refugees that are, are in your town right now. So you just you have a change in government in Italy, and it's a pretty dramatic change in government. You know, it's, it's the first time since the Second World War that you've had a you have a fascist party in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Georgia Maloney, even though some of the things she said in the past, she's now saying that she's very anti-Putin. I guess that she wants to support the Ukrainians. Of uh, what what do you make of your new the new prime minister? Uh, assuming she'll be able to form a government, of course. What do you make of her?
1: Okay, so um, I think Italy is not a very easy country to interpret for foreigners that are looking at the politics Um, because, okay, um, you know, Italians in maybe the last 15 years, uh, they, they have become very tired of, of politicians, basically. Like uh, I, I know a lot of a lot of people in, in the world. <laughs> yeah. But what what happened is a lot of people stopped voting. Uh, turnout was always very high in Italy. Was historically always around eighty percent. Now this last election, I think, was like sixty four, which for us is very very low. Yeah, I heard uh, it was the
0: lowest turnout
1: ever. Yes, yeah. and. Um, So what happened is a lot of people stopped voting uh, and the people that vote, (laughs) they're always looking for something new, Okay, not necessarily um, looking uh, into the programs or what these people want to do. They just vote the new thing and they're hoping that the new thing will be better. Uh, this have given, has given way to a lot of populist parties, which um, I would not define um, really uh, Meloni as fascist. I would define as right-wing populist. Uh, on the other side, we had left-wing populist. So basically, we're dealing with populists. This is the, this is the bad thing is we are dealing with a lot uh, the political offering is made by populists um, and and what happens with populist parties is they don't care about the well-being of the country they just want to give you know whatever at that moment they think um, will be you know good for their um, I don't know, their electorate. Basically, they, they give out like bonuses and, and uh, you know, money to, to some parts of the population. And also, uh, so this is uh, creating, of course, a crisis in the, um, in the budget. Right. So the, the, the budget has been, uh, you know, that uh, Italy has one of the huge, uh, f- hugest debts in the world. Uh, and it's getting worse all the time because all these parties, what they do, they basically give out money. Right.
0: But that uh, but that's the antithesis really of populism. Populism is about being something for trying to help all the people, especially like the working people of uh, And I I think that, I mean, like, for instance, in the United States, the left-wing populist movements that there have been, if you take somebody like Bernie Sanders, uh, granted, he's never been in a position, you know, to lead beyond being a senator from from Vermont. But yeah, like, populism is really, it's a, it's a, a very idealistic way of governing. I think what we see happening is that it's a fake populism. You know,
1: like Trump is a fake populism. Well, you, you know, I think I think we give a different meaning probably to the word populism. Uh, you know, I think, like like I said, Italy is difficult to interpret because if you look at the United States, for instance, mm. you always have the same parties, mm. same parties. It's those two parties, okay? They're changing people in the parties, but it's that. In Italy, if you look, you have, we have like, Parties now, basically uh, 90% of them didn't exist 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's like every time you have new parties with like, you know, creative names, like this time is the Brothers of Italy. And then yeah. you have Go Italy and you have, uh, I don't know, the Five Stars or whatever. And you you cannot really, uh, I think, it's lost the meaning, the meaning of right and left kind of got lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the it's better to look at them as like competent, wanting to make good reforms and incompetent populist giving out public money for no reason. Um, as far as Georgia Meloni, I think the problem, Uh, I think she kind of feels now the responsibility of being uh, the first woman to um, to become the prime minister. So I think she doesn't want to fail this this thing, which is historical, you know, (laughs) she's right wing, but she's the first woman. So it's, it's it's going to go on the history books for Italy. And I don't think she wants to fail. this, the problem with her? I don't think it's going to be the economics, because we are very uh, Italy is um, Italy's economy is is uh, very much um, dictated by the European Union because of our debt. So we can It's not like anymore like we can really do too much by ourselves uh, because of this unsustainable debt. So we. Will, uh, and especially during the recession that is going or it's already started with all the energy costs and, and everything going up and inflation, et cetera. I think the problem with her that we need to watch what happens as far as uh, foreign um, alliances like you said, mm-hmm. because uh, she, the, the two part's it's, it's, um, in the past few months, I think she was preparing to take over she knew all the polls were in her favor etc so she started you know saying she was all for nato and against uh, putin and all for funding ukraine and on draghi's side on, on this uh, on this matter however her her allies she's she's in a coalition with two parties i think the real problem is is the coalition you know yeah. Uh, because we have two parties that are very pro-Putin and they are allied with her and the government is going to be done by the coalition, not by the single party. So she um, may be pressured to give in, uh, you know, to some some of these influence. So it is all to see what's going to happen on the... um, on, on this, you know, it's, it's probably also depend on how the war is, is gonna go. If, if the war is going to turn uh, quite fast in favor of Ukraine, uh, then these other parties are are going to lose a lot of influence. If this is going to become a very, you know, long war going on for months or years or whatever, and people are going to become less interested, in the war in Ukraine and more interested in their wallets, you know, the energy and everything, then it's, I think it's gonna be harder for her to um, stand up to the pressure. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, we'll see. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, some other things I've, I've read about her is that she, when it comes to like LGBTQ rights, she mm-hmm. is not in favor of, uh, you yeah. know, that she has a very, her, uh, When it comes to social issues she is very uh restrictive uh and italy right now compared to some other compared to let's say france and spain even like is a little bit behind like i know italy doesn't have same-sex marriage which you do have in most other western european countries do you think let's say you know for instance in the united states right now you i'm sure you're following what's happening with abortion I'm not sure where. What What is the status of abortion in in Italy?
1: Well, yeah, abortion is, is been legal for I think since maybe the 70s. But um, is is um... okay? I think we need to distinguish between Italian society and Italian politics. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think Italian society doesn't care less. It totally doesn't care about this, you know. So Italian society is, I think, quite progressive, a lot more progressive than people maybe outside of Italy are aware, especially uh, in the North. uh, I think um, Italians, you cannot distinguish from any other Northern European country. And uh, I think maybe in some ways also a lot of, more progressive than a lot of American states, probably yep. uh, <laughs> uh, however italian politics it doesn't matter what is your party, your left, right, or whatever i don't know it doesn't matter how you call yourself on this on these topics uh, uh, everything is dictated by the Vatican, so it's the Vatican that decides um, so Every time in Italy, any party tries to reform, say, end of life, beginning of life, uh, marriage, you know, all these topics, then in the Vatican steps in and nothing really happens. So as far as, as the legislation is quite, you know, stuck, but in the meantime, Italian society has been going forward. Um, So yes, uh, same-sex marriages. Um, I think, I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe it's possible to have like a civil union, a same-sex civil union. At least I see in Milan people are doing this, so it has to be legal. (laughs) Um, But for instance, you cannot adopt if you're single. Um, So, mm, you know, mm, also you cannot adopt uh, same-sex. If you're a same-sex couple, you cannot adopt. You cannot, uh, if you're single, you cannot uh, adopt. Um, You cannot uh, have, uh, you know, an an IVF with with donor uh, gametes. You cannot do that. So what happens, Italians are very pragmatic. They do everything anyway, um, and if they need to do it, they maybe go like to Spain or whatever, you know, other places where you can do it legally. So this is not stopping what I'm trying to say. This is not stopping Italian society um, because actually people in Italy are not so much religious. However, the politics are dictated by the Vatican. Um, I see a danger because Maybe, in this area, it depends how long the government will last. Mm-hmm. People are predicting it's not going to last very long but if if it lasts maybe two or three years, they may try to change some legislation uh, but i i don't know actually it's, it's something you know we never had such a a, a very um right-wing government like this. So I'm not really sure what, I, what I'm going to expect. It could... Yeah, well, I guess,
0: uh, you know, just that makes just another topic that I wonder where they're going to be on this. And this is something that I know affects everyone, but especially for you as a wine grower, and, and I should also say olive grower, you make delicious olive oil, uh, <laughs> is that climate change. Yeah. And, you know, this has been another like record-breaking summer in terms of heat. And it's, you know, like you were talking about growing like uh, ch- Chilegio and you know returning the the real indigenous varietals uh, that belong to the area. And I wonder, like, how is that impacting you and um, what you're doing right now? And you know, and also any thoughts you might have on how the government, the current, the new government is going to address climate change.
1: Yes. Um, well, it's affecting, of course. Uh, like in Italy, like you said, we've had the worst drought in the last 70 years all over Italy from north to south, no no, no difference. Um, the Po River, which is the biggest river in Italy, has been down to like 10% of the, of the normal uh, water. Um, well, it's affecting us because we need to start thinking about lack of water as a permanent um, situation, not as an extraordinary situation, which in fact uh, we are, uh, I am addressing. Uh, uh, so for instance, I am looking for water in my property because we need to have more water. <laughs> this is a mandatory. Um, Uh, For the rest, you know, we're already doing all we can to save water and cultivate in a way that we don't need water. Uh, As far as what governments, uh, what this government, I don't know, they haven't talked so much uh, about environment in their, or climate change in their campaign. So I I don't think it's one of their main interests. However, if we want to be um, honest, no Italian government of any color has really done ever um, anything about climate change. <laughs> um, they're not addressing the issue um, in a structural way. They're only reacting to emergencies. So. And this is common to everybody. So for instance, now there was a big flood in the market region last week in Italy, there were like 13 people died and it was really huge. And, and then you discover, oh, you know, and then I think they use climate change as like a culprit as an excuse for not doing anything. Uh, after this flood, they discovered that there was a project stuck in bureaucracy for the last 40 years uh to avoid this uh, this river you know to flood and uh, it's been there this project for 40 years and they haven't done anything about it and then you have a heavy rain and this is what happens also a lot of people a lot of towns have been building where you shouldn't be building like they put houses too near rivers uh or in places where they shouldn't be um take out woods, uh, stuff like that, you know? And then this is making climate change consequences worse.
0: Well, so how do you see the future for La Meliosa with climate change? Like, are, do you do any irrig- irrigation?
1: We don't irrigate, but we need some water when we put in uh, the a new vineyard. The, um, you know, typically we put in the, the new vines in uh, maybe March, March, April. And usually what happened is we got rains in April and May. Uh, this is not happening, it's not been happening in the three, last four years. So this is why I said I need to address this as a permanent situation and uh, we need to give um, to get organized in order to be able to give water to the new vines for at least the first years. Or, the, of course, this is not uh, they're, they're not going to make it through the first year. This, this is, um, I think, the main the main thing for us. Yeah,
0: well, unfortunately, we are I just look we are out of time here uh there's always so much to discuss with you and uh, you know I, I appreciate that you know not only what you do as a as a grower and as a winemaker but how you incorporate other things that are happening into the world and it's to what you do so uh it's, it's such a always a pleasure to, to uh have a conversation with you thank you so much for your time
1: uh, thank you pamela it's not easy to Talker, you, you asked a lot of uh, very complex questions. I hope I could explain, make myself clear. But thank you for your time. It was always very nice to speak with you as well.
0: Okay, great. Well, so you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco.
1: We'll be back in just a minute.